Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and I love thinking about cool stuff. You're invited to come think with me. Um, this is a podcast where I have experts on to talk about whatever they're experts in. And today's a really special episode. I have with me again, Dr. Taylor Sear. He is a regular on the podcast. But he's got a lot of cool stuff to say, and today we're going to be talking about moral luck and um, how it messes with uh, different views of um, compatibilism regarding moral responsibility and determinism. It's going to be awesome, so stay tuned. You'll learn all sorts of different positions in the com compatibilist camp and why we might be this or that. So by the, by the end of this episode, you're going to be up to date on cutting-edge uh, philosophy of free will and moral responsibility literature. So that's going to be awesome. Before we jump in, though, I just want to thank everyone who has making who is making this podcast um, happen. Everyone over on uh, Patreon. So if you guys have benefited from this show, if it's one of your top five, top ten favorite shows, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can support me for a bunch of different options. Um, if I get like a thousand of you guys supporting it uh, at five dollars a month, that would be huge. That would be fantastic. If I get like a million of you, that'd be even better. But really, if you like the podcast, please uh, consider supporting it. You can find a link in the description, and there's all sorts of different benefits at different levels of support. So click the link and check that out and consider supporting. Another way that you can support, though, is uh, by clicking the other link in the description for Biblios Clothing Company. So these guys are my sponsors now, and uh, they're sponsoring this episode. You can get a 10% discount on your entire uh, order, clothes, uh, all sorts of cool gear over there, really, really cool designs. They're a Christian cl clothing company, and if you go... Through the link in the description, you can get 10% off your entire order. So the link is uh, bibliosclothing.com slash discount slash Parker, and Parker's in all caps, for a 10% discount. So just follow the link right in my description, wherever you're getting this, uh, wherever you're consuming this at, and you can get 10% off. It also shows them that uh, I sent you, and that's kind of a big deal too. So support me by supporting them, and uh, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. All right, enough about that. Let's jump in. We're going to be talking about responsibility and determinism. Super jazz for this one. Taylor, man, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Parker. I was thinking maybe I miscounted, but I think this is uh, my fifth time. I yeah, think dude, I'm in the I, I five timers right. club. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's a rare. That's a rare so club. You owe me like a pin or something. Something man. <laughs> to commemorate. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Um, some, sometimes people are like, Hey, do you send your guests stuff? And I'm like, well, I've had like 147 episodes. So like, <laughs> I don't do that, but maybe the five timers that, that, that could be a thing. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to work on something like that. I drink coffee. Could use a mug. Yeah, man. <laughs> Careful. Cause some other <laughs> uh, people who come on are listening. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll definitely talk about that off air. Nice. Um, dude. So today we're going to be talking about two of your papers, one in particular, but um, we're going to be talking about moral luck, and I'm, I'm super excited about it. You said that you've, you've changed your mind. We were just talking off air. That you've, mm -hmm. You kind of changed your mind since even writing your dissertation, which or finishing it, which wasn't that long ago. 
Um, So let's jump into like, we got to define a little bit of these terms because they're going to be unfamiliar to a lot of people. Um, But the main contention is that constitutive luck undermines historicism. That's it for everyone. And now we can start defining our terms. Uh, (laughs) Let's let's start with uh, constitutive luck. What is that? Yeah, so... Not oh, sorry. Hey, wait, no, I got to no. go back. We got to go back. Okay. We're talking about compatibilism. Yeah. So that's going to mean different things in different contexts. Yeah. Like what what compatibilism do we have in mind here? Yeah, good. So actually, yeah, I need to like start with a whole lecture. But <laughs> I'll try to be brief. Um, actually, I think we can sort of set aside the compatibilism versus incompatibilism thing. Maybe I'll say something more about this in a minute. But mm-hmm. a, a lot of my papers uh, are framed as like, I don't know, I'm contributing to debates among compatibilists, while actually the issues are going to be there for other believers in free will, so libertarians, mm. incompatibilists who think we have free will. So actually, a lot of what we'll say today, I think um, uh, it won't really matter whether you're a compatibilist or a libertarian. What re- will really matter is whether you think we're ever morally responsible for what we do. Mm. So that's more of a debate among believers in responsibility. Um yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think it'll um, make more sense once I say um, what the sort of what the difference is between historical views and non-historical yeah. views. But they, they, well, yeah, that's not just compatibilists. Right, right, right. So this was something that that I would always get stuck on when I was first started talking with you because I would want to talk about in my head compatibilism meant free will is compatible with uh, determinism Mm -hmm. and in some sense, and there's different types of compatibilisms and stuff like that within the free will literature. But then you'd be like, well, dude, you got to be careful, man. We're talking about moral responsibility right now, not free will. And so you can, those things come apart and you can kind of mix and match them. So you can believe that moral responsibility is compatible with determinism. Can you be, can you be a compatibilist in the moral responsibility sense and not in the free will sense? Um, good. It depends on what you mean by free will. The way yeah. that, in fact, the way that most people use the word free will nowadays, they define it uh, sort of functionally. So it's whatever control you would need to have in order to be morally responsible. Right? Mm. It's like the control condition on moral responsibility. So it, in, if you're using free will in that sense, it makes total sense to switch back and forth between talking about free will and moral responsibility in connection with determinism. However, it used to be the case that people meant something more particular by free will or that people would just use that term as a term of art to refer to something like um, leeway or the ability to do otherwise or something like that. And so if you're using free will in that sense, then, yeah, I mean, my own view is that that might be incompatible with determinism. Um, and yet moral responsibility still would be compatible with uh, determinism. So yeah, those can come apart. And, and that, that's like, that's semi-compatibilism, right? Depending on certain people that you ask. Yeah, that's right. Okay. There's so much, man. It's, it's amazing. I love it, but it's, it's fun because you've opened my eyes to a lot of this and I've read some free will stuff as well. Um, and so then when someone says like, Hey, do you think we have free will? I get like all triggered and like <laughs> going and like, what do you mean by that? Right. Um, but it's good because it's it's super important. It's super amazing. So what we are in my mind, I thought we were going to be really far downstream. But you're saying no, this applies just more more broadly, um, mm-hmm. which is awesome. So where do you want to start, man? Should we start with constitutive luck or? Yeah, that sounds good to me. So maybe it's worth saying a little bit about what moral luck is in general. Yeah, and then how constitutive luck is 
at least constitutive moral luck can be a type of moral luck. So um, there's disagreement about whether there really are any cases of moral luck. But if there are, here's what a case of moral luck would look like. A person's moral responsibility. Usually people focus on blameworthiness, really interesting cases where someone's blameworthy for some bad action. Um, a person's, let's just say blameworthiness, um, depends on something that's outside of their control, something that for them is a matter of luck. So to use a case um, from Thomas Nagel's really influential work on moral luck, imagine you have two reckless drivers, both of which are basically duplicates of each other in terms of what's under their control. They both run through the same red light with the same degree of recklessness, um, knowing that the, knowing that it's wrong to do that. Oh, okay, they're exactly the same. Um, one of them goes through the red light and doesn't hurt anybody, luckily. Hmm. The other one had no control over this, but hit a, let me, let me put it this way. Um, it wasn't under this other agent's control, whether there was a pedestrian in the crosswalk at this intersection and this person um, hit that pedestrian. So the only difference between the two cases is whether there's a pedestrian in the intersection and both of the drivers would have hit the pedestrian, but there's only a pedestrian in one of the cases. And so only one of them is blameworthy for hitting a pedestrian. And it seems like there's a difference between mere recklessness and manslaughter, like killing yeah. a pedestrian through reckless driving. So, yeah, that would be a case of, a, apparently that would be a case of moral luck where something that's outside of a person's control, whether there's a pedestrian in this intersection, might affect their how blameworthy they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's those are cases of moral luck. And then um, Nagel, in that famous paper, distinguished four types of moral luck. Um, he called them resultant, circumstantial, constitutive, and causal. And maybe we'll talk about some of these, but not all of them. But the one that I'm most interested in is constitutive moral luck. And constitutive um, here refers to an agent's constitution in terms of like their character or other features of them, their mm-hmm. sort of psychological profile. And so a case of constitutive moral luck would be a case where a person does something and is blameworthy for it um, because of the constitution that they had, where that constitution wasn't under their control. So we can do another sort of two case parallel where we compare an agent who's sort of naturally um, uh, very courageous and the other one's naturally not courageous, maybe fearful and both of them are given an opportunity to do some heroic thing. Um, and one of them does it because they're naturally courageous. The other one doesn't because they're not naturally courageous. And it looks like we'd praise the one and if not blame the other, at least we wouldn't praise the other for right. not doing the heroic thing. Yeah. <clears throat> Constitutional luck was a little bit hard for me at first, but then I just think just kind of play with the word. And it's like, it's how you're constituted. That's mm-hmm. It's it, it seems like it's not totally up to us. We didn't shape ourselves like it's super naive to think that. So some people might say, yeah, I pulled myself up my bootstraps. But it's like, no, it's actually a problem called bootstrapping, dude. Like, <laughs> um, so. So, yeah, that one makes sense to me um, now. And, and after reading your paper a little bit more was really helpful. The uh, I want to talk just really quick about the other senses, because there's a couple ways that people try to get out of constitutive luck. And you wrote another paper coming out in thought. Um, but I didn't write that the name of that one down. Do you have that in, in your mind? Uh, the inescapability of moral luck. Oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, it was actually, I just learned this. It was assigned to an issue at the, in December of 2021. So it has a publication date now, 2020. Nice. Yeah. Congrats, man. Thanks. Um, well, this one's really fun because in my head, constitutive luck, I want to get around. I want to get away from them. Like, I don't like this one. The other ones are more like you give a dilemma and you're like, look, okay, if you want to get out of one luck, you have to end up in one of these other two luck. And you kind of, you reduce out um, Nagel's fourth category because it can be, um, it's a little bit redundant because it seems like all those cases are captured by either circumstantial or constit- uh, or constitutive, which is cool. And I think I'm sure someone at home is, who's like a big Nagel fan is like, no, you need four. But I, I think you're right in doing that. So I wanted to jump in on that. But I do have just this little slide to help us. So, um, OK, let's let's talk about why moral luck is just inescapable. And then we'll get back to constitutive luck um, and how it ought to help us reject historicism but hopefully not yeah okay well um i'll say i'll say more about at least resultant or sometimes called outcome uh moral luck in just a minute but yeah i feel this i think i share your sense that well at least sometimes we do shape our characters or at least indirectly affect our constitutions what we're like and that does make a difference um at concerning how morally responsible we are kind of down the line. And so what you put on the slide is um, something I put in this paper that's now in thought. Um, it seems like we what we can say in response to um, this sort of problem of constitutive moral luck is that one, uh, we can sometimes exercise at least indirect control over our characters. We can form our characters in various ways by performing actions that we're responsible for um, and, and when these actions bring about changes to our characters at later times. So when that happens, it seems, this is the second part, one can be more or even less blameworthy um, when acting from a character over which one had some control um, than one would be if entirely constitutively lucky. Okay, so part of what's kind of in the background here is this idea that um, it seems like moral luck shouldn't be a thing, right? In fact, Nagel and others think of this as a sort of oxymoron. Like it shouldn't be that how we're morally assessed is sometimes dependent on factors outside of our control. It seems like when you're assessing me, especially when you're blaming me for what I've done or what I'm like, like if I didn't have a say over, if it was because of something outside of my control, you shouldn't blame me for it. Right. But there's this sort of control principle or this luck free intuition about at least blameworthiness, that it seems like luck shouldn't affect blameworthiness. Um, and I do feel that, especially when it comes to the case of constitutive moral luck, that like, yeah, if uh, if someone just, they did what they did because of some character trait that wasn't up to them at all, they had no chance to like affect it at all, or, you know, they didn't choose it. Well, it seems like that affects how blameworthy they are. Like it shouldn't make the, they shouldn't be as blameworthy as if they had made themselves have that character trait. And so the idea here is, well, here's a way to make sense of that. Uh, Sometimes we do bring about changes to our character and that can affect um, how blameworthy we are. And it can make us more blameworthy in some cases. Yeah, but it's not so easy as (laughs) your inescapability uh, paper says. So like it's, is it out of the frying pan into the fire? Is it worse? Like, or is it just, no, that it's just, it's luck all the way down. Um, is it worse to be, I don't know if worse is even right. Right. But is constitutive luck better than like outcome or what, what do you make of that? 
Yeah, I think different people have different thoughts about this. So let's go to a case of outcome luck. I mean, the I guess the reckless driver case is a case like this where two agents do the same sort of thing. They perform the same kind of action, like, yeah, they're two reckless uh, actions. Um, but then what happens, what consequences result are, um, um, well, there's, there's luck involved in what yeah. consequences result. Um, I think probably more people are inclined to say there really shouldn't be um, moral luck here. There shouldn't be differential blameworthiness between these cases. Then, then people say, um, I think more people are uh, inclined to reject resultant luck than the other kinds of luck, including constitutive moral luck. Okay. Um, yeah. Now I should say, I, I find it, I find it compelling. There is an important moral difference between mere recklessness and manslaughter and, um, similarly, um, uh, between, uh, merely attempted crimes versus crimes actually committed. Um, and it turns out that our legal system does differentiate yeah. between those things. There are different degrees of murder that track, uh, exactly these things, uh, outcome luck. Um, so I guess it doesn't bother me too much to say, yeah, there really are cases of, uh, resultant moral luck. It just means I have to say, well, this initial thought, the control principle that you know things outside of our control shouldn't determine our blame, how blameworthy we are, that's going to have to be revised in some way. Okay. So, resultant or outcome luck, just it it really has been messing with me a lot since I I've thought about it here and there, probably through mostly through your work, but then thinking about it today too, it's just. Yeah, I definitely have thought about this. Like last year, it bugged me a lot. I kind of pushed it out of my my mind, but. It's really weird that if you're driving and you're like drunk driving and you swerve and you hit uh, the <clears throat> you go over the sidewalk and you hit a pole. If there was a person between there, you'd be, it would be manslaughter or whatever. Mm-hmm. whatever I don't know the charge. And if there wasn't, it, it you would just get a DUI. Yeah. And it's like, dude, what? Like you had no it was the same thing was going to happen. You still acted the same so that one maybe people could mess with, but like attempted murder, and this is kind of messed with my view of attempted murder, where it's like you should probably be tried as a murderer because uh, I think I, I thought of this because we were studying deviant causal chains, and it's like you know if someone shoots a bullet, but another really really good uh, sniper shoots your bullet, mm-hmm. and then their bullet turns out to be the one that that killed Jones or Smith instead of yours, it's like you wanted to kill him, you tried to kill him. If that bullet hadn't hit yours, it would have killed him. Like, you should be charged with murder. But let's say that it didn't, you know, with deviant causal chain and the bullets went and Smith is still alive. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's so weird because I think that you should be charged with murder and that Smith is still alive. So it's like you're charged for something that didn't happen, but your intentions, like, you tried to kill him. And yeah. so because of the luck factor, we're not going to charge you for what you really intended to do. So weird, man. It's been really messing with my whole idea of murder and, and attempted yeah. murder and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those cases where like uh, an apparently abstract moral debate has real life implications. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's perplexing. I mean, some people start where you're where, where you seem to be and then think, well, we've got to revise what we think about the sort of proper response to these various you know, crimes versus attempted crimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it's like, <clears throat> yeah, I, you're a bad, you're a bad murderer. Like you, just cause you suck at murdering people, you don't get, 
you don't get blamed as much. Like, yeah. if you were better at murdering, then we would charge you more. But we're not going to charge you because you're just like, you're a joke. Yeah, it's weird, man. Yeah, I don't know. Do you just off the cuff? Like, do you do you still think that we should have different punishments for attempted versus actual murder? I do think it makes sense, and I do think. There can be reasons for having like different uh, legal responses to these things, even if we think at the end of the day, it like the moral issue is different and maybe mm. like they're oh, playing yeah. where to the same degree. So those can come apart. Um, but I actually think, no, um, it 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 does reflect worse on an agent when they succeed in doing the bad thing they intended to do, um, even though they had the same intentions and maybe they tried just as hard. I think, look, uh, you've got these two would-be assassins. They both, you know, fire, you know, their guns. They're both blameworthy for that. And then, you know, one of them hits their target. They're blameworthy for that, too. And then the one who got lucky isn't blameworthy for that extra thing. And I think to make sense of that, we have to say, yeah, one's more blameworthy than the other. Yeah, man, it's so crazy. It's the whole thing is nuts. Um, It's really fun. It's really like fun and aggravating to think through but yeah. so 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 the whole thing your whole paper the inescapability is if someone's trying to get rid of constitutive luck they either end in uh is, is that right am i pitching it right that it's, it is a dilemma and you either get one or the yeah. other you either get resultant or circumstantial yeah it's so it's kind of complicated but for i mean for our purposes the idea is like you have to choose whether you're going to have a lot of constitutive luck or whether you're going to admit outcome luck or resultant luck Mm. Um, there's, I say some stuff about circumstantial too, but because I mean, it's basically the same point as about results. So can you just, can you just, yeah. Can you just like define that for us? Yeah. So uh, you mean circumstantial circumstantial? Yeah. So this is supposed to be when a person's blameworthiness depends on circumstances outside of their control, which is, I guess a kind of broad category, but instead of thinking of like what happens after the agent's action, like in the case of outcome luck, think of like the, I don't know, enabling conditions of the action in the first place, the circumstances the agent finds themselves in. Yeah. So like, I think one of the examples, I, don't, I forget if it was in Nagel or in uh, Michael Zimmerman's paper on, on moral luck, but um, imagine that the assassin sneezes like right at the time they would need to fire the gun to hit <laughs> the assassin. And imagine it's not up to them whether, you know, dust gets in their nose or whatever. Right. Um, there's a case where circumstances outside of their control affect how blameworthy they are. And so that yeah. would be a case of circumstantial moral luck. So, so like, yeah, like um, for me, I, I think this one's helpful for me, but I could be getting it wrong. If, if the assassin, two assassins, different worlds, whatever, they're both about to go kill this guy. One of them, uh, the janitor left the door unlocked and he's able to get in. The other one, the janitor did uh, locked it and was dutiful. And so he wasn't able to get in. Is that is that a circumstantial luck? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good case. Yeah. Okay. And a really disturbing case from Nagel's paper is um, this. Imagine um, two Germans uh, during the say 1930s, one of whom becomes a Nazi because he, you know, his work kept him in Germany um, during the rise of you know Third Reich. And the, this other agent who's very similar, maybe has exactly the same constitution and so forth, is transferred to Argentina during that time. And so never has the opportunity to support the Nazis, turn in his neighbors, uh, his, his Jewish neighbors or anything like that. It looks like 
just because of whether one had, you know, the opportunity to act really badly determines how blameworthy they are. Because intuitively, the one who does turn in his neighbors is much more blameworthy than the one who never does it because he doesn't have the opportunity. Right. Yeah. Um, man in the high castle, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dang it. It's it's tricky, man. Moral luck stuff is is wild. Um, OK, so. Anything else to like close up the uh, the argument there to, to say like hey look we you're not getting away from it you're not getting away from from moral luck yeah so I guess I should make it explicit why I think there really is a dilemma yeah um, like a lot of people when they hear about moral luck they think yeah it seems like we accept that there are cases of moral luck but also it seems like we have this control principle in the back of our minds it seems like there's a uh, at the very least a puzzle if not a paradox. Some people think there's just no way to make sense of this. Um, But a common response is to say, look, there's some way that we can make sense of what's going on such that there aren't really cases of moral luck. Hmm. Um, Maybe we can. Yeah, well, I won't I won't fill in the gaps there. But what my paper is trying to do is enter into this debate to say, well, you've got to accept moral luck of one kind or another. um, If you want to accept that we're actually sometimes morally responsible for what we do to various degrees. So The connection, the the reason I think you can't escape moral luck is that um, if you like this idea that we can mitigate constitutive luck, which we Mm -hmm. started with, where you you perform actions that indirectly shape your character, I think you have to accept resultant and circumstantial luck because, well, look, if, if you're doing actions that have the outcome that your character has changed and that require that you face circumstances, um, you know, wherein you can change your character, well, then those character forming, self forming actions are going to um, be cases of resultant or moral luck. So, one case that I use in the paper, it's kind of adapted from um, a horrific story by Al Mealy, where this kid, Chuck, like, I guess he read some Nietzsche or something, and he's like, morality is for the, you know, for sheeple, and I'm, I'm going <laughs> to make myself really cold and not care about morality. I'm not a weakling. And so he decides to make himself more cruel by torturing animals because mm-hmm. he realizes, look, I'm squeamish when I torture animals now, but if I keep doing it, I won't sort of feel the pangs of guilt when I'm doing bad stuff. And so he does this. He, like, knows what he's doing the whole time, and he performs all these horrific actions towards animals, um, but makes himself really, you know, morally atrocious at, by the end. He has a horrible character at the end. And then you, we imagine that he, like, I don't know, murders his neighbor or something mm-hmm. like that afterwards. It seems like he's more blameworthy for murdering his neighbor than would be someone who didn't have this evil character as a result of this process of forming their character. So we could contrast this case of Chuck with a case of an agent who is like manipulated overnight into having the same kind of character as Chuck. And then Mm -hmm. imagine that this manipulated agent, let's call her Beth because we'll use that case later on. Uh, Sure. But imagine Beth goes and does the very same thing. She murders her neighbor, but you know, only as a result of, you know, having been manipulated, having like, her values of race and replaced with Chuck's values, which she didn't have any control over. We can stipulate. Yeah. So it seems like, yeah, if, uh, if Chuck is more blameworthy for murdering his neighbor than, than Beth is, and that's because he's mitigated his constitutive luck. Well, um, insofar as whether he succeeded in changing his character was a matter of resultant luck, circumstantial luck, then, 
um, we're going to have to admit that there are cases of resultant and circumstantial luck in order yeah. to adopt this um, mitigating constitutive luck strategy. Yeah, and and so like had if Nietzsche, Nietzsche or Nietzsche whatever, if he was a, a significant factor in Chuck going down this path, then it's like, well, if he hadn't read that part in Nietzsche, would he have done this? And it's like, well, maybe not if that's so fundamental. And so that you've taken out this one lot, you know, so there's, there's luck all the way through. It does seem like our intuitions about Chuck versus um, Beth, it was Beth, right? Yeah. It, it does have like a historical kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. And so then like we're right into the historicism and then you're going to sweep that out from underneath us. But I'll put some of it back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is a historical element to this idea of like shaping your character and affecting your degree of blameworthiness uh, later on. Yeah. So, yeah. So you're not getting away from luck. Um, if you want to mitigate constitutive, how you're constituted you're going to need resultant luck and maybe some circumstantial in there. Um, so it's it's here. We got to deal with it. But, yeah, that's my conclusion. But okay, so so <clears throat> ways that compatibilists have. So this is why I thought it was a compatibilist thing, but you can broaden it. Um, the the reason I thought this was compatibilist is because there's if you believe maybe you don't need a determinism to be brought in, but if you're to, if you hold the determinism and moral responsibility, you think they're compatibilist. There's a couple options you can be a structuralist or you can be a historicist and between the two i think you know historicism sounds more plausible to me because of what you just said like mm-hmm. chuck's history chuck did like he intentionally shaped himself into this monster where beth didn't and so um can you just can you lay out like what is what is structuralism in like mm-hmm. the the modern or the i, I forgot what, the extant form i think yeah so structuralism it says that um, whether a person's uh, morally responsible for something um, doesn't depend on their history. Yeah. I'm being a little rough. I mean, I could be a little bit more precise, and I do get more precise in my papers, but for our purposes, that's fine. Right. So the idea is basically like the stuff that matters for being morally responsible is stuff that you can sort of capture with a you know, time slice of the agent. So something Mm -hmm. like whether they're sensitive to reasons at the time of action, whether they identify with the springs of their action, whether they endorse what they're doing, stuff that doesn't make any reference to, um, yeah, the causal history of what they're doing at that time. Well, so Taylor, is it, is it structure? Cause it's like how the, the agent is structured during that time slice, or is it just an accident of history that's called structuralism? That's a good question. I'm guessing, but I'm I'm not totally sure that it's a reference in particular to Harry Frankfurt's compatibilist proposal where, yeah, be acting, being morally responsible for acting in a particular way um, is just dependent on the right kind of hierarchical structure between an agent's first order desires and their higher. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Frankfurt was all about that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we don't need to go into the details, but like he's a very good example of a structuralist. He's sort okay. of like, yeah, uh, okay, very good, yeah. All right, so so we got um, structuralism and and yeah, and then historicism by contrast yeah. just says uh, actually history matters. Or another way to put it is like moral responsibility is an essentially historical concept. And so like, yeah. often people will use examples like. 
uh, sunburn or something like this, where something counts as a sunburn, not just in virtue of its time slice properties, like being a first degree burn, say, yeah. you can get those in other ways. It's a sunburn because it was caused, it has a, ca a certain kind of causal history, namely it was caused by exposure to the sun or similar, similarly with like legitimate um, coins or something like that. Yeah, dude, I didn't know that you guys use the sunburn stuff. I was just reading Donald Davidson today. I guess he's kind of got his fingers in everyone's pie, but <laughs> yeah, they were, he was talking about in reference to like semantic externalism where it's mm -hmm. like if the doctor says this is sunburn, and it's not. It was caused by a heat lamp or something. Mm -hmm. It's not actually sunburn, sunburnishness or something like that. So right. That's cool. Yeah, I guess it does. It does carry over and yeah. is useful in all different ways. So, the um, this when it okay. I think that historicism is probably motivated by manipulation mm -hmm. arguments. W what does the structuralist say? Not your structuralism, but just the extant form, the common form, or whatever. What what's the structuralist reply to manipulation cases? Do they say that they are still morally responsible? Oh, I guess there's a bunch of different yeah. options, probably, right? Yeah, you, the typical response, and here again, I think Frankfurt's a good example because he has been explicit about this. Um, in response to hardcore manipulation cases, like imagine this really sweet uh, agent, Beth, uh, was manipulated overnight by a team of neuroscientists to have Chuck's horrible character. And then she goes and does something really horrible. I think it's natural to think she's not, she's not blameworthy for murdering her neighbor. And that seems to be because of her history. Not like she very well might think like, yeah, I really want to be doing this murdering stuff right now. <laughs> but that's because of the way that the neuroscientists implanted these new values in her. So like, if you're just looking at the time slice, it seems like she's just res as responsible as Chuck or anybody else who's like freely doing this horrible thing. Um, so that kind of case typically motivates a historical condition on responsibility. And then, yeah, structuralists like Frankfurt have said, yeah, it doesn't matter how she came to have those uh, values or, you know, all that matters is that she, you know, identifies with this course of action, you know, the springs of her action. So anyway, um, usually the, the response is to bite the bullet. And so you mentioned earlier, this is an area where my mind has changed over the years. I started off working under Al Mealy at Florida State pretty convinced by his use of manipulation arguments that there must be some historical condition on responsibility. And I was thinking like biting the bullet like Frankfurt does does not seem <laughs> very plausible. Right. Um, and then when I did my PhD under John Fisher, another historicist, like my thinking didn't change too much, except as I was um, working on my dissertation, I wrote a chapter on um, sort of luck objections to compatibilist um, yeah, just to compatibilism in general, to this idea that we, we can be free and responsible, even if determinism is true. And some of the luck worries kind of raise, I don't know, issues in the vicinity, right? And in, including some of these moral luck uh, cases. Mm -hmm. And I was realizing not very many people were talking about the sort of moral luck cases and that literature in connection with the free will literature. And so I started trying to kind of bring those together and um, it was thinking through responding to those objections that I realized, oh, wait a second. I, I actually think you can be morally responsible, even if you're manipulated in these really horrible ways. And that uh, it's going to turn out that I'm a kind of structuralist. Yeah. 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 And we'll, we'll get there because it's, it is really fun. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm I am like super downstream of a, a lot of the debates. It's kind of like I, I I got into like the history type stuff from studying theology, and everyone talks about Edwards, and then realizing like not very many people talk about Edwards in like philosophy, and there's a whole mm. different conversation going on. So then I like jumped right to the front of it with you, and just recently, like maybe last year, or something realized that people have been using moral luck against libertarianism. Uh, liber- libertarian conception of free will. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. And so, like, this is a problem for everybody. Yeah, right. So, typically, the people who talk about manipulation are talking about that either as a challenge for particular compatibilist views like Frankfurt's right. or in the context of the manipulation argument against compatibilism. So, mm-hmm. like, it's not surprising that a lot of people sort of think of this as an issue for compatibilists. Yeah. But the issue of whether moral responsibility is essentially historical. Yeah. This is what we were alluding to at the beginning. It doesn't depend on whether you're compatibilist or incompatibilist. This is just about moral responsibility. And you know, if you think you're that we're morally responsible, you have to answer this question. Do you think moral responsibility depends in this important way on history or, or not? And so, yeah. yeah, among libertarians, there are, um, his, historicists. I think Robert Kane is a really good example of this. Um, but then oh, there right. are um, what we might call structuralists, although I don't think that, that label's been used to describe any particular libertarian. But yeah. Yeah. Popular. Well, um, libertarian. Okay. So yeah, um, I could see like, so yeah, sourcing compatibilism. Uh, I just, I hadn't thought about it, but, but they, I like them the best. I think they're because they're kind of closest, you know, right over the line to where where I like to be. But there are certainly tons of because they want to say, look, it's it's how you shaped yourself, and then they slip in a little bit of indeterminacy. And I'm always so confused what they're what that indeterminacy is doing because it doesn't mm-hmm. really seem to make sense. But um, all the decisions that you were presented with, and your you know the ability to act on those decisions, like you're still going to have the different types of luck that you say are inescapable. And I'm just now kind of like putting that all together. And it's fun because you get to, it's another thing I get to throw against my libertarian friends, <laughs> but it is kind of like a two cool quay where it's, I need to answer it. Cause it's going to come back and hit me in the yeah. face too. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. It's one of my friends who's done the most work on moral luck and he's done a really good job. He's done even more work on this of kind of bridging the free will literature and the moral luck literature is um, Robert Hartman. He has a whole book in defense of moral luck, but he's a libertarian and thinks there's moral luck. And um, whereas a lot of other libertarians that I know want to sort of try to get rid of as much moral luck as they can. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense. It's yeah, there's a lot of reasons, but I mean, anyone who's like theistically inclined, it's like, this is, it gets kind of scary. Cause you, there's, there's a lot of theological implications. Then if there is a, just a whole bunch of moral luck piled up, you're like, well, dang it. This is hard. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so when it comes, so, uh, do we need to show how manipulation, uh, motivates historicism anymore? Should we go into, uh, Mealy's Anne and Beth? Yeah, I think that I think we we did it. Um, The yeah, the Ann Beth case is is slightly different from the way I talked about Beth and Chuck. So like in Mealy's original version of the case, you have these two philosophers, Ann and Beth, um, who are both good philosophers. But one, Ann, is a lot more industrious and puts in a lot more time into her philosophical work. Like she works 80 hours a week, whereas Beth has like 
you know, a lot more going on in her life besides philosophy. She puts in, mm-hmm. you know, a good 40, 45 hours a week, but um, she would not stay late at the office on a holiday weekend to review a manuscript, right, where, when she had some other plans with her family or friends or something like that. And so the case that Mealy gives is one where these manipulators, right, they're, these neuroscientists, I think they're hired by their dean in this case. Yeah. Um, their dean wants Beth to be more industrious like Anne. And so he hires these uh, manipulators to make Beth like Anne. So I don't know exactly how they do it, but they end up making it so that after the manipulation, which Beth didn't consent to, didn't know was going to happen. um, Now she's like got the same desire to work as hard as Anne, even though it's going to require sacrificing some of the things she had previously cared a lot about. And a lot of people think kind of like the original version of the Beth case I gave where she's more like Chuck. Like if she's manipulated into having this character that leads her to stay late to review a manuscript, she's not, she's not morally responsible for doing that. So, Mm -hmm. and that, that again is the idea is like, well, and the reason for that is something about her history. Like she was, I mean, the way that Mealy thinks about it, her capacities for rational deliberation for self-control, those things were bypassed in the manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like that historical fact is part of why she's not responsible. And and that's, that's what makes uh, Mealy a negative historicist, right? Because he's saying like, you have to not have a certain history. And if you have like a manipulated history, then you're not responsible. Yeah, that's exactly right. Whereas others will emphasize the need for something positive in your history, like, um, kind of endorsement or taking responsibility or seeing yourself as the right kind of agent uh, in light of appropriate evidence. So Fisher is one who is characterized as a positive historicist who has those kinds of conditions. Yeah. And, and I really like his, uh, uh, his and Ravisa's guidance control. Yeah. And I'm sure I don't understand it fully. Um, and so, yeah, maybe you'll just wreck that and stuff. Cause you know, the literature way better, but, um, in their conception, you have to have um, you have to be reasons responsive. You have to have reasons. You have to be able to respond to reasons, and you have to have a mechanism ownership, uh, where you're like you you take ownership of the mechanism, which which I always consider like rational faculties, because if you're mm-hmm. reasons responsive, but you have to like consider yourself an an agent. Is that is that sound right? Yeah, yeah. So that's part of it. See yourself as an agent. You see yourself as. Um, yeah, manifesting your agency um, when acting on particular mechanisms. So I think one of their main examples of mechanisms, this is not the way we normally talk about like the way that agents act, but like, right. um, practical reasoning, like when you're thinking about what to do and acting in light of reasons, like that's the mechanism that leads to action. And um, there are lots of puzzles for their for the details of their view about how exactly to distinguish one mechanism from another. Mm-hmm. But what they want to say in cases of manipulation is that there's a different mechanism involved, right? So like when Beth has been manipulated, she now stays late and reviews the manuscript, but on the basis of this manipulation mechanism rather than her ordinary um, mechanism of yeah practical reasoning. So the problem, according to them, is that... She, even though she's responsive to reasons after the manipulation, she doesn't see herself as um, she doesn't see herself as an agent who's kind of responsible for acting on this mechanism in light of appropriate evidence because she doesn't understand that the sort of what's what exactly has gone on with the manipulation. 
um, yeah, she doesn't satisfy their positive historical condition. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, that, so I really like their stuff. I really like the language and I know other people have taken, uh, guidance control and, and, you know, messed with it a little bit and, and made it their own. So maybe I like those more, but th that seems like, um, this is free will stuff and you don't have to get into epistemology too much, but it seems like kind of a strong, like internalist. Well, maybe it's externalist. I don't know if it, if it fits, but yeah. She, that's a good question. Yeah. How do you like, how does she see herself? She doesn't know that she's been manipulated. Right. So she still sees herself as this rational agent, but us from the outside are like, no, she doesn't have mechanism ownership because it's been jiggered with. It's someone else put a different mechanism in or manipulated the, the mechanism. So it's not the natural one which mm -hmm. the positive historicist wants to affirm, but she doesn't know that. So if it is up to her to see herself that way, she can, she will still see herself that way. It seems like, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this condition that um, she see herself that way, like in light of the appropriate evidence or on appropriate evidence, um, I, that's where it seems like they're adding something external um, as a requirement. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, someone should should write a paper about like why compatibilists must be internalists or something like that. <laughs> that so would that be, can... yeah, yeah, that'd be interesting. Uh, what's funny is sometimes people use the terms uh, internalism and externalism to refer to structuralism and historicism. Okay. Yeah. I don't know well, if you were trying to make a joke along those lines. But... Well, I was making a joke because you wrote a paper by yeah. that title. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I was arguing. It really isn't about the epistemology yeah. stuff. Right. Yeah. But that's why every time I think that I understand uh, guidance control, I'm like, I really like it. And then you'll say something about it, and I'm like, dang, I don't know if I like that. Yeah. Um, where I, I think it's kind of like I like their language, and I just want to go with Mealy's like, negative like as long as someone doesn't mess with your mechanism, you still have mechanism ownership. But it's still it's hard for me because it's still like a third person. Well, I guess, yeah, if it is this kind of overriding manipulation, none of us could ever know if we've been manipulated or not. It's only the third person looking the person looking at you objectively could say whether or not. But in, while we're in it, we wouldn't know. Is that does that sound right? I know that's not even really part of the case, but yeah. I mean, I guess you could describe the case in different ways. Sometimes it's like it's explicit that when she wakes up, Beth is like, what has happened? I like, oh, okay. have all these new values and it's weird. And, <laughs> yeah. um, but she still does the thing anyway. Um, yeah. once, once you fill in the details a little bit more, like it might actually shape your response to the case. Because yeah. like it's a lot more plausible that the more she thinks about it and it's like, yeah, I guess this is what I think. Like it's going to be more plausible that she's, you know, really acting on her own reasons, at least what she's taking to be her reasons at the time and that she's responsible for them. Yeah. And maybe if responsibility comes in degrees, then she'd be more or less responsible right. in, that, in that case. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so we went over, you know, there's positive and historic, uh, positive and negative historical accounts and within those, there's a whole literature too, and you can be, you know, moderate reasons responsive or this and that, um, which is cool, and I love it. But then you come through with a wrecking ball, and you're like, <laughs> "No, constitutive lock still undermines historicism." So I got another slide for us here with your argument. Hopefully, everyone can see that. Let me get rid of the watermark thing. Okay, yeah, can yeah, you just lay, lay this out for us? 
Yeah, the slide's kind of wordy. And so maybe for those not looking at it, we can at least kind of simplify things. But it's a simple argument with like, it's only two premises. And then a con- and the conclusion is just that historicism's false, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is to say there's just, um, it's not the case that moral responsibility is essentially historical. And so, and the two, two premises are relatively simple too. Um, the first is a claim about, certain agents being morally responsible. And then the second is a a bridge premise or a no relevant difference premise. Okay. So premise one says agents who are entirely constitutively lucky can be morally responsible for what they do. So the idea here is everyone and certainly all compatibilists, but I think even um, incompatibilist uh, believers in free will have to say there are at least some cases where we don't have any control over our constitutions, and yet uh, we're responsible for acting from them. And the main case that I use to motivate that premise is the case of little agents, uh, mm-hmm. like kids who are doing um, what I take to be the stuff that's, you know, the first stuff that they're responsible for. So, like, you know, people disagree on whether there's like an age of accountability yeah, or whether ask, like, right. you know, res- when responsibility <clears throat> gets off the ground, but it's, I, I don't think it's that controversial that like a three month old is not blameworthy for, you know, popping me in the face and then, yeah. uh, a 13 year old is. And so sometime between there, like responsibility, if it's going to get off the ground, we have a first, I'll call it a morally responsible action. The first action for which the agent is morally responsible. Mm -hmm. So yeah, depending on when you think that happens, when all of the conditions for responsibility are met, um, sometime probably between three months and 13. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. Not 13 months, 13 years old. Somewhere in there, I'm not sure when. And I have kids, two kids within that range right now, and I never know what to think about whether they uh, ever deserve it. Oh, you don't, yeah, aren't you supposed to write that on the wall, the date of their first uh, morally? (laughs) Yeah, when I'm convinced, I'll I'll write it, yeah, on the ruler (laughs) and the door. (laughs) That's great. Their moral (laughs) severity was high enough. That's right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, interesting. I'll have to think about that. when I should put it on there anyway. So the first premise is just that, that like there's going to be, if responsibility is going to get off the ground, there's going to be a first morally responsible action. And look, if it's your first morally responsible action, maybe you'll push back on this a little bit, but if it's your first morally responsible action, then, well, you didn't have any say over the character that you're acting from. And so you've got to admit you're, this agent is entirely constitutively lucky. Mm -hmm. So that's the first premise. And then, I'll be quick here. The the bridge premise, premise two, says there's no moral responsibility relevant difference between those agents and agents in these manipulation cases that we've been considering. So um, Beth, um, when she acts, when she reviews the manuscript, or even in the other case where she murders her neighbor, um, they have no say over their constitution. We can mm-hmm. stipulate in the case like the, that's a result of the manipulation. Um, and in that respect, they're relevantly like these little agents who are doing their first action they're morally responsible for. And so they seem, um, yeah, it seems like there's no difference between them with respect to moral responsibility. And so the conclusion is, like, these manipulated agents are going to uh, be morally responsible despite failing um, to satisfy these historical conditions like uh, Mealy's or Fisher's or others. 
So yeah. historicism is false. Oh man. Okay. Well, um, I think I think we may have talked about this before, but um, when we the bridge uh, premise to the bridge principle, to bridge principle, bridge premise, um, the so when it, when an agent is manipulated, <clears throat> don't. It seems like we're assuming that there's like a hard reset, and now now they're in this exact same situation as the the child who has their first moral why do why should we think that there's like a hard reset like that and maybe i'm mm. wrong maybe we're, we're not thinking that what, what do you make of that yeah that's a good question i mean on one way of taking that question um or like what it is to do a hard reset like yeah it's it's true that we're not really doing a hard reset so like if by hard reset you mean like we're changing all of this adults um this adult agent's capacities to being relevantly similar to like a young child's capacities like now their impulse control has been mitigated (laughs) and like they don't understand the world as well like yeah that's not what's going on in the manipulation cases in fact we might leave intact quite a bit of um the agent's psychological profile like what the neuroscientists who are um tinkering with the brain do in at least some versions of the case is they just kind of like um, very precisely remove and add some values to the agent's psychological profile. Right. So maybe that's kind of far fetched, but imagine that it's, that it happens and we think, well, when they're acting from the, the tinkered with parts of the constitution, it seems like they're not responsible. Whereas, you know, if, uh, if the agent like, you know, had this desire to break a promise to their friend and the manipulation didn't tinker with that desire or with any of the associated values that would lead them to act in that way, even though they've been manipulated to having, you know, a different character, it might not make a difference to their responsibility for that. So all I want to say is that when it comes to um, the, the action that the manipulated agent was manipulated into performing, they seem relevantly similar to the little agent. And in particular, here's my sort of diagnosis of what's exactly similar. Neither of them had any say over the constitution that they're acting from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Um, What about like, I wonder if anyone would go with like the, I I found how useful sororities is to just bring that up again and again in every field of philosophy. (laughs) Just amazing. You go, there might be a sororities problem here. Is there really such thing as like a, first morally responsible action or could it be like well if it comes in degrees you may never get a first morally responsible action do you know what i mean like you know I you do, may, yeah. so i'm sure you can get around that yeah i think i have a footnote in the paper on this because i just <laughs> it, yeah things get complicated when we start doing sororities <laughs> things and yeah talk about vague boundaries Mm -hmm. i guess here's what i'm inclined to say and then i'll say what i say in that footnote i'm inclined to say it can't really be vague whether someone deserves praise or blame for an action i think it's going to be like it might be impossible for us to know whether they're responsible or how responsible and i guess this is what i think about my own kids like i'm not i'm just not in a position to know whether they really deserve some credit yet and some someday they will i will um or some blame 
but I don't think that it's like, I don't think that tracks sort of ontological indeterminacy about whether they're blameworthy or praiseworthy. Mm. I just, I'm too much of a realist about blameworthy and praiseworthy. Interesting. So it's just like, it's just an epistemological problem for us, but there, yeah. there is a, a matter of fact. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I want to say. Now, even if you disagree, though, um, I I think I can run the argument, and this is what I say in that footnote, where you just say, yeah, maybe there's this, like, vague boundary, but then, like, right after you get across yeah. that threshold from the vague boundary into the clear case, it looks like you're still going to have the same problem. Like, no, no control over the Constitution, and yet um, we think moral responsibility has to get off the ground okay so i think that's probably right and i i, I like it. it i'm just thinking of a of a pushback is like okay let's say it comes in degrees there is a vague there is a matter of degrees until a point and then you can say look after this point I, absolutely like before it was 90 if it does come in degrees you were 99 percent responsible as silly as it sounds but yeah. in the next the next action was 100 percent but in that next action, you've already been formed by half, uh, seventy-five, ninety-five percent moral uh, or moral morally responsible actions that have all led up to that point. Right. Yeah. So you're thinking you're like you're halfway to being responsible, but you're not really responsible. Like you haven't this. It's a, a binary notion, and it's not on yet. We're still in the off stage, yeah. and yet it's enough to. It's enough to mitigate constitutive luck. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a problem for me. I guess. Um, is that maybe it's just a crazy thing to say, though? Because maybe I'm saying that, that would be it nice. comes in degrees and it doesn't come in degrees, right? That's, that's, right. That's I guess, what it sounds yeah, like. Yeah. This, this is controversial, but I guess the reason I'm not so swayed by that kind of reasoning is I, I think moral responsibility is not a binary notion. I mean, there is a sense in which either you're responsible or you're not. But responsibility itself is a degreed or scalar notion. And so I think it's going to be most plausible that, you know, even if there is this sort of epistemological worry about young kids, like when they do start becoming morally responsible for what they do, it's only a little bit at a time. And that's something that grows over time. Yeah. Um, so others will disagree with me on that and say, well, maybe how blameworthy or praiseworthy they are comes in degrees, but responsibility itself is a a binary notion. And I guess I just don't see so much daylight between, you know, moral responsibility itself and then blameworthiness and praiseworthiness. So I'm inclined to just say all of that comes in degrees. Mm, and yeah. yeah, as soon as you get this, uh, a, an action where it seems like um, the agent is shaping their character and mitigating their constitutive luck, I think you you must have already allowed some responsibility in the door. Yeah. So for that first action where they start shaping their character and mitigating their constitutive luck, uh, I think they had to have already been entirely constitutively lucky. Yes, yes. This is good. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that's good. Because I was thinking, man, if someone takes the degrees approach, then maybe they can get out of this. But if they, with the degrees approach to responsibility and, and uh, praiseworthiness and comes constitutive luck. So you've already let it in. So you don't get yeah. to use uh, degrees to get out of your argument here. Dang, that's good. Yeah, now I think you should think more about this and push back more because uh, I think this is where I was a little quick in the in the Phil Studies paper. And um, like I've gotten some critical 
feedback. Like, I don't know that I've convinced anybody. So I've gotten a lot of critical feedback from those <laughs> who have read the paper. Um, but like, yeah, there's, there's just, I think there hasn't been enough discussion in the literature on how we go from not responsible to responsible. And I think mm-hmm. actually there's a lot to be learned from focusing in on these little agents. So I would encourage more people to, well, to disagree with me, but push back, but work on it, their views on how this works. Cause I, yeah, I think there should be more work on this. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, you use this, this phrase moral severity and it's the relevant difference between an adult and a first morally responsible action. Does that sound right? Yeah. 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 That was, that was what um, Al Mealy said to That's me the right. first time that I gave him like the rough version of this argument. This was many years back. And I think it was, it was at a conference where he was giving a paper defending historicism and I think he was presenting a, a paper that's, um, I think it's now in his 2019 book, uh, Manipulated Agents. But he was basically saying, um, like, Frankfurt and um, Gary Watson and other structuralists, compatibilists, he was objecting to them and defending his historicism against their view that if you're compatibilist, you have to be a structuralist. And so mm-hmm. um, I was testing out my argument there. And I think that was his sort of off the cuff initial response. Look, like in one case, Beth murders her neighbor. But then if you go to cases like, you know, little Tony, this kid who's doing, you know, this first action that he's morally responsible for, he's probably like, you know, disobeying his dad or like messing with his sister in an annoying way not killing anybody so yeah. there does seem to be a difference in moral severity at least between some of the manipulation cases and uh and typical little agents yeah okay yeah, yeah. but yeah i to me like we can fix that just by tinkering with the cases we can either uh, ramp up the severity in the little agent case yeah. or tamp it down in the adult manipulated agent case it doesn't seem to be a relevant difference to me. Yeah, that's the fun thing with these because someone, someone always goes, well, this is kind of implausible. And you go, I don't care. This is philosophy. <laughs> what do you mean implausible? This is a, it's a, it's a intuition pump. It's whatever it is. Yeah. It's a, a hypothetical because if you can't get around this without saying, well, that's implausible, then you lose. And I've just won. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I love that. that. It's, that's one of my favorite things about philosophy is just, yeah. You don't get to go, I don't, that's highly unlikely. This is not that kind of thing, man. Yeah. I mean, even, I don't think even that this is that outlandish. I mean, it is more outlandish if you talk about a little agent who's doing something with moral severity, like a murder. But like, you can imagine we're comparing like, yeah, lie, like disobeying one's dad or lying to one's dad, which, you know, is something you can imagine a little agent doing. Um, and you could imagine the manipulated adult agent doing that sort of thing because mm-hmm. of manipulation. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's not implausible that um, no. an adult agent do something that's not so morally severe. Well, and it's not, it's not that implausible to think of a, unfortunately, like I had these old neighbors and the, the twin brothers were insane. And one was kind of this dopey kid. They were like maybe two and a half, three. So I, maybe I shouldn't call him dopey, but he was like the taller brother. And he was kind of like, didn't know what was going on. And the shorter one was like, he knew the world. Like this kid was really sharp. It was like pinky in the brain. If you remember that one, that that was these two brothers. And the little brother one day is just shoving rocks into the taller brother's mouth. And it was like, (laughs) Hey, stop doing that. And like my family was like, dude, stop. What the heck? And it's like, he could have killed him. Um, 
And, you know, I don't think he'd be morally responsible for, like, murder in that case. But if he was, and that was, like, his first moral action, it's like there was all sorts of circumstances that led him to do that. Yeah. Where where moral luck comes in. Yeah. And circumstantial or, or constitutive or whatever. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. It's just crazy. And you can make these... They're not as outlandish because we live in this broken, terrible world. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I should just go ahead and flag this. I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but I don't think that like my view implies that this little kid is just as blameworthy for murder <laughs> as like an adult would be who did the same sort of thing. Yeah, that's a good flag. Yeah. Um, okay, so I wrote this down, and I'm not sure if it makes sense anymore, but I don't want to like I, maybe old old Parker was onto something early this morning. I don't think so. But um, so why think that the historical position is committed to characters formed entirely by constitutive luck? Um, And this is people have tried this as I read your other paper too, like trying to yourself forming a little bit throughout throughout Mm -hmm. the way. But in the argument, there's no relevant difference be premise to the, the bridge one between agents who have been manipulated in certain ways and agents who are morally responsible for actions that stem from characters with respect to which they are entirely constitutive lucky. So, the case is, I think what I was getting at is like, you're comparing this case uh, of the first actor, the, the first moral action, but maybe that's not relevant to um, back to the original case of like Anne and Beth, where they are, they are completely downstream. I don't know. I might've lost, I might've lost my train of thought here. Um, they're yeah. not, so like, like Beth, um, Beth and Anne, they're not entirely constitutively lucky, right? Like right. Would, you, you wouldn't think that they are, would you? No. And yeah, this goes back to something we were saying a little bit ago, but like because the manipulators haven't done a total reset yeah. on Beth, there are still parts of her psychological profile, her character that she did have, um, you know, a say in shaping, but when it comes to the, whatever it is that brought about the action, like the action she was manipulated to perform, she's acting from say, let's just say character traits that she didn't have any say over. And in that respect, she seems like the little agent who is entirely constitutively lucky. Okay. What, what if, um, what if you got even more fine grained and you said like the manipulators put a desire in wherever to kill Jones, um, but it was just to kill and like whatever method was up to her, would she be more, do you think she'd be more responsible than if they said kill him with a gun? Hmm. Cause now it's like kind of her choice and what, which way to kill him. Yeah. Like, so they've given her this goal or end, but they've left open the means and she's just choosing that. Yeah. I don't know that it makes that much of a difference how blameworthy she is if she gets to choose the means. If she if she chooses a way more horrendous way to kill Jones yeah. than uh, Anne, who is also given that desire, and that one's just like really quick and painless. We see like maybe something about the rest of her character that was formed all the way yeah. up until that point. Yeah. I guess it depends on whether that other stuff did influence her yeah. decision. But yeah, I guess you're right. If if they just don't give her a choice and they have her commit the murder in one way, but then they give her in another case, they give her a choice and one is more horrific and she chooses that does seem to 
you know, implicate her more. Yeah. I'd have to think more about the details, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We can come up with tons of these. So gruesome (laughs) and terrible. dark, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Um, Okay. Uh, Yeah, we talked about, I think we talked about difference in capacities, right? Or is there more to say on that? That was just the difference between like, yeah, like little Tony and like adult Tony or something. Um, Yeah, I I don't know that there was anything more we should say about that. Um. Okay, so there's this there's this reply, and I already forgot how to say her name. I think it's it's Nomi. Yeah, Nomi or Polly. Or Polly, yeah, yeah. And there's this objection. So people change their minds for um, this is a really interesting thing that you grabbed and you brought up to say like to to can further argue against historicism, which is wild. But you you pulled this objection. You said so people change their minds for irrational or, or irrational reasons, and they acquire uh, new aspects of their character. Um, and these new aspects are at odds with their old ones, and it just like like religious conversion or deconversion. Mm-hmm. And so you you have a different, you currently have a different uh, character if you're a Christian than when you were an atheist, or an atheist than when you're a Christian. And they're like diametrically opposed; they're like really opposite. And yeah. yet we still think that the Christian or the atheist, after conversion or deconversion, is morally responsible, even though they're not acting on their history. Does that? Mm-hmm. Does that sound like it's a, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what uh, Nomi Arpali says is that like with, in lots of areas of life, we can go through these transformative experiences. And I mean, it almost looks like manipulation cases without a manipulator. Right. I mean, in a way, I mean, the conversion case, if God is doing the converting might look relevantly similar to a manipulation case, but in any case, it's not because you like, um yeah decided to shape your character in a new way or anything like that it's just like a yeah um a switch is flipped or something like that and because of this transformative experience you now have a new character that affects how you how you act and she thinks and i think this is plausible uh it's pretty commonsensical i think people are still responsible for what they do in light of these new characters that they are constitutively lucky in having yeah. At, at first I was, um, I've gone, I've thought about this one a lot because of conversion. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, if God's the one converting us, cause I'm a Calvinist, um, well, that, that seems like a problem. He might be manipulating us. And it's like, well, what's the end of manipulation? What's the goal that you don't have moral responsibility. And so it's like, well, I don't really care if I'm not morally responsible for my own salvation. Cause mm-hmm. I am a Calvinist. I kind of think that I'm not in that sense. Um, so I kind of want that to be true in that case. Um, but also, sorry to, to bring in all the theology here, but like, yeah, we're going to have treasures in heaven if we do uh, good works. Like Calvinists still believe in a doctrine of good works and stuff like that. And like, it's biblical. So we there is still some moral responsibility. So the Calvinist doesn't get to get off and just go, yeah, fine, whatever. Because it's like, no, the, the rest of the Bible says we are responsible for our actions and we're the whole parable of the talents, like you're mm-hmm. going to be judged on what you do, dude. So I just, I, it seeps into my theology and messes with me back and forth, all this stuff. <laughs> it's as it should. Like if you yeah. somehow compartmentalize these, it would be kind of strange uh, yeah. given your commitments. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. I, I think about these things together, although often as a philosopher, I don't include the sort of theological implications in my in my papers that oh, yeah, published right. in thought or phil studies probably but i do have a, a chapter 
with um, a friend of mine, Lee Vicens, um, on election and human agency. It's we're like the philosophers contributing to this theology volume. The I think it's called the TNT Clark Companion to Election. Oh, um, nice. And I'm not sure when that'll come out, but we have a draft. People who are interested can write me and I'll send it to you. But uh, we do look at this literature, like we talk a little bit about transformative experiences, but the manipulation literature, we're talking about free will in general, and yeah, how we could model what goes on when God converts somebody and different understandings of election. And so, yeah, yeah I've thought a lot about this and, um, I'm not sure that that's driving uh, everything that I want to say about, um, you know, the cases that, that Nomi Arpali talks about, but it's definitely in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that. I can't wait to, to read that, that chapter. So one thing that I we talked about just a little bit off air was just like rational deliberation and whether that does play a role, because I do love like the reasons responsive language type mm-hmm. stuff. And if someone just switches from uh, one of one of her cases was someone who didn't want to have children to once the child is born, like you are all excited about being a father or mother. Right. And it's like to me, if that's not a rational, uh, if if that change in mind didn't come about through reasons, it doesn't seem rational to me. Um, And so maybe just like what what role is is rationality playing in attributing moral responsibility to people because if it's a if it's a rational cause of that belief again uh thinking through like philosophy of mind and the argument from reason type stuff always messes with me when i hear a rational type stuff yeah yeah those are good questions and i guess i think some of what some of that stuff might be separate from the question of whether the agent's morally responsible um, okay. after having the transformative experience. But um, I guess what's odd about the cases is, is that it seems that the person is responsible afterwards, even though um, this sort of acquisition of new values bypassed their, you know, rational deliberation, their, their capacities for self-control. Um that's what it seems like is going on in the case. And that's yeah. what makes them relevant for my purposes is it looks like um, it's not a case where they, through their rational, reflective self-control, um, endorsed something or, you know, owned it. It's some, it seems like something that happened to them. And yet when they act on the basis of that um, thing that they've acquired non-rationally, um, they still seem responsible. Yeah. Okay. Well, Okay. Um, just to digress a tiny, tiny bit in yeah, sure. back back into theology, I've I've been thinking about this one a lot um, because uh, so th- if you think about like personal identity over time and conversion, it seems pretty weird if you take the Bible literally and say like, well, depends on what you mean by literally. But look, you're a new creation in Christ, and if you don't have uh, a change, if you look back at your life ten years ago and you don't look different, though you weren't following Him and now you are following Him then you might not be a Christian. You might need to check yourself. Like Paul tells us to do that. Mm-hmm. So I've got this like decently radical change of, in desires. Um, I want to glorify God. I didn't want to before I gave him lip service and now I'm trying like it's all been flipped. And so I've thought about this so much with like, if you committed a crime before conversion and you've changed and you're like a different person, it's like, well, that, historically i'm still in the same i'm like the same substance 
Right. If you're a, if you hold to a substance ontology, but like mentally everything's different. It's like I'm not even the same. So I just wonder, like, how do we hold someone responsible for something pre-conversion if you take Christian conversion like in that strong sense? Or is it just like, no, it's a literal, it's a, maybe it's metaphorical that you're a new creation mm-hmm. or something. What, what do you, what do you make of that? Have you thought about that at all? I have. And, uh, there's a lot to say here, but what I'll say, uh, here is just that, um, I think it must be metaphorical because we're mm-hmm. talking about your conversion and that requires that it was you before and <laughs> after. So yeah. whenever someone says, Oh, they're a new person, I, I'm skeptical that they, <laughs> that they mean that in a very literal sense that like, yeah, they're numerically distinct from earlier <laughs> self. Um, however, the new person language, I think, should affect um, how we respond to um, people's uh, behavior, even behavior that they're, say, blameworthy for. So let's suppose you did something really bad in the past. I think among our reasons for holding you accountable um, for that action is not just that you're blameworthy and that you sort of you deserve a certain kind of negative response. I am a kind of retributivist, but I also think that there are other reasons for holding you accountable, like that it'll help form your moral character. It'll send a message to others that like that kind of thing is not okay. Mm-hmm. And if you've gone through certain changes in particular, if you've like seen the light, you've repented, you like you disown that actually, like you wouldn't, you don't want to do it anymore. You've tried to make amends to those affected by your wrongdoing. Like a lot of those reasons for holding you accountable won't be there. They won't be there anymore. Right? Mm. Like there's only a little bit left, and it's based on your, you know, whatever retributive reasons there are for for blaming you. So if that's the case, then if you are a new person, it might affect how we blame you, even if it doesn't affect like whether or how blameworthy you still are. That's that's a really good point, man. That's that's interesting because um, C.S. Lewis wrote this essay, uh, the humanitarian theory of of punishment, I think, or something like that. Okay. Um, and it's 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 apparently it's used in some ethics books, uh, which is cool. And everyone's like, you know, he's his essay made it in an ethics book, secular <laughs> ethics, which is cool. It is cool, but people talk it up a lot. But he he's talking about like the need for dessert. If you don't have dessert, like moral dessert, then uh, then you just leave it in the hand of the psychologist to determine when, like the humanitarian theory of punishment is like, well, until you're corrected. And ironically, on that view, you can just go into a conversion and now you're perfected. It's it's different. You're a different person. So now you, no, no jail time, no punishment, anything. So it's just you connect to a lot of stuff for me right there. That's pretty fun. Nice. Well, there's a lot more that we said. We should talk about it more sometime. We yeah, can. definitely. Um, OK, well, let's let's I want to give you time to to give yours because you poked holes in everyone else. And now <laughs> the listeners are, are falling backwards and forwards like yeah. she's madman. We're probably confused about what I think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess my view is uh, this. It's structuralist in that I think whether a person is morally responsible, praiseworthy, blameworthy, um, just depends on what they're like at the time of action, right? So Mm -hmm. like structural conditions. Um, But I think that how responsible a person is, like including how praiseworthy or blameworthy they are, can depend on their history. And in particular, given what we've said about mitigating constitutive luck, I think these sort of 
you know, character forming actions are the kinds of histories that can make you more or less um, praiseworthy and blameworthy down the line. So what this implies for some of our cases is that like, well, little agents, they're like massively constitutionally lucky. They can only be responsible a little bit. And that makes sense because we think natural. I think it's natural to think that like uh, we can't become more and more responsible um, as we develop as little agents. Yeah. Um, but also, and this is where I think the, the no relevant difference premise of my argument is really interesting. Manipulated agents can still be responsible, in my view, for doing the thing they were manipulated into doing. It's just that they're, if they're constitutively lucky, like these little agents, they're only responsible a little bit. So structuralists, so it says it doesn't matter that they had this um, horrible history where they were manipulated. They're still responsible because they meet the time slice conditions on freedom. But because their degree of responsibility depends on their history, it can turn out that they're not very much responsible. So there's, it's sort of like, you know, if the most intuitive thing to say about Beth is that she's not blameworthy for like flaking on her friend or for murdering her neighbor, um, it might seem like I'm biting the bullet as a structuralist and set in and affirming her responsibility. But I can sort of, uh, I don't know, soften the bullet that I'm biting by saying, well, she's only a little bit responsible, like as much as one of these kids that you think is, you know, responsible a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So I'm going to put some meat on it. So okay. let's say, let's say Neuralink is actually works and Elon Musk's Elon Musk puts a Neuralink thing in, in Beth's uh, head mm-hmm. and he found the spot in the brain and and maybe it's just something simple as like pulling a trigger so like he yeah whatever he i don't want to make it too manipulative yeah, whatever yeah. like let's just stipulate that yeah she puts the neural link in there it's gonna override and she's gonna she's gonna shoot someone for for apparently for her reasons um she she would be like she would be a little more responsible but not for not for even like manslaughter, like when what in what mm. sense, how much I know like how much is a dumb question in this case, but yeah, um, yeah, she might be responsible for murder, it's just she's only a little bit responsible for that, like she only uh, deserves a little bit of blame for it because I mean, depending on how you define the terms, like if you're um you know hmm. if you're intentionally bringing about a death, like it's not through mere recklessness or negligence, it's probably gonna count as murder. So she yeah. probably will count as a murderer. So it's like, premeditated. Yeah. So like yeah, it's in there. So it's premeditated. That is like in our laws. But so she's responsible for murder. But I mean, so then we our, our ideas of like punishment and responsibility have to come apart then. Right. Because mm-hmm. she you would say if she's only a, she is responsible. The thing is murder. She's responsible for it. But it, it's not her responsibility isn't that high. And so she probably shouldn't get the chair for that or should she right i i would say like yeah if you think some people do deserve the death penalty for really horrific crimes like she's just not going to be nearly as much responsible as those people who you think do deserve it and so yeah probably she's not going to deserve it and i mean this this is intuitive if you start thinking about why she committed the murder and you start learning more of the details of the case like there's some other people you should maybe look into blaming the people who set her up. Um, and even if there isn't another agent involved, you realize that like she went through the Bermuda triangle and then murdered somebody, because yeah. she was, you know, manipulated, but without a manipulator, like you'd think, well, we should prevent people from getting affected by, you know, the, whatever the Bermuda triangle does. Um, yeah. But 
like we shouldn't blame her so much. Now, if she's, this is where I might agree a bit with some of the, the free will skeptics like Dirk Paraboom and others, there might still be reasons to like imprison her or otherwise keep her from doing similar things given her new character. Um, but right. I don't think that she's so going to deserve like a long prison sentence just for this one action. Yeah. Well, so that's, that's the difference where it's like, and we've talked about this before and, um, uh, like I think like Paul, I can't remember who Paul Manata brought up. Um, who he, he mentioned a difference between you and I, where I was more about like the intentions of people and you had the, the outward actions in mind. Do you remember mm. this? Remember who he brought up? Vaguely. Um, Can't remember the guy's name. But Was this on the quality of will stuff versus responsibility for over actions? Yeah, I think he was citing um, Peter Graham's work on quality of will. I think that's right. I think that's right. Okay. And he was like, yeah, you agree with with Graham. I was like, okay, cool. Um, (laughs) But, man, this one's weird because you're saying that she is responsible for murder. And it seems like... That's what our laws pick out. The, whoever is responsible for this murder goes to, to jail. Here's the sentence for it. Mm-hmm. Whereas what I want to say, and I'm sure you want to say this too, but what I had in mind when accidentally agreeing with Graham was like, our intentions absolutely matter because you're hitting someone with a car, that objective fact doesn't tell you enough. You still have to know the intentions behind it, whether it was manslaughter, whether you're drunk, whether it was premeditated murder. Right. So those all things, all, all those things count. But you're saying like, this isn't one of those cases where we need to look at the intentions. The intentions were there, and the action was carried out. And right. now we just have to change the laws. So it's like you're, yes, murder. Well, you know what I mean? Not necessarily, because okay. so I do think like all of my theorizing is about the the morality of the. Um, oh yeah, the, you got yeah, me. Again. I guess it's it's about degree of praiseworthiness and blameworthiness and that might come apart from what we think is sort of i don't know justified in the legal context in terms of responses like for example imprisoning someone to prevent harm to others even if that person doesn't deserve that Mm. harsh treatment that could be justified i think just like i think it is justified to have someone quarantined right we've been doing this for a while now in the context of the pandemic right it's it's permissible to force someone to quarantine despite that being a cost to them and it might be that they're not blameworthy in any sense for needing to be quarantined. Um, it's just that that like our pragmatic reasons for sometimes doing what counts as harsh to somebody can come apart from what they in fact deserve. Yeah, um, you just fall back into Lewis's trap, though. Like then, then we have unjust laws. If well, I think in, in the case right, of murder, right? Because yeah, if be that's like, how you, if that was how you responded to all. <laughs> or like that's how you i don't know i don't even know what it would look like to not have like a mens rea component or something for for crimes but no my, i guess my point was just that this can happen but then the like the usual case will be that um the penalty is you know it it fits the crime it's just there can be other reasons for applying penalties other than dessert yeah so yeah but if if you apply a penalty without dessert doesn't that seem like it's like an immoral law then? Yeah, if you if you did it like without a justifying reason, it would be wrong. But 
arguably there are cases where there yeah. is a justifying reason. And Someone's, I'm not a sort of utilitarian. I was just going to say, man, I don't know. It sounds like. <laughs> but even even deontologists and virtue ethicists can say, no, there's like there can be these um, yeah, reasons to do. Yeah, something like forcing someone to quarantine or locking them up, even though they yeah aren't blameworthy or aren't very blameworthy for something. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, so so getting back to to your history sensitive structuralism, um, do you have? Is it more? It, it's like it, it is a structuralism that is influenced by history. It's not like a historicism. It's not like fifty fifty or anything like that. Yeah. Or, or do you have any kind of idea of that? Yeah, the way I like to think of it is there's two things that we're talking about, and usually they get blurred together in this literature. There's the fact of responsibility, which is like the weather question, whether someone's responsible or not. And then there's the the degree question, how responsible they are. And I think those come apart. And so I'm a structuralist about the weather question, whether someone's responsible. That's just a matter of the the structure of the time. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to the degree of responsibility, you have to take into account historical stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think the focus on constitutive luck can be very helpful. I don't want to think, I don't want to suggest that like that settles the matter because it might be that even the like time slice conditions on responsibility, like, I don't know, sensitivity to reasons or degree of identification between, you know, first and second order desires, maybe all that comes in degrees too and can affect the degree of, uh, responsibility, but I do think the history can make a big difference to degree of responsibility. Yeah, man, that's really, yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, again, I don't know the literature super well. Are, are there people who are like, are there a lot of people who are intimately opposed to degrees uh, of responsibility or is that kind of like a settled thing? We all know there's degrees. That's a, that's a good question. And I actually don't know the answer, even though like I talked to a lot of people in the free will debate, I think, I get the sense that like people hadn't really worked out the details on how degrees of responsibility is how that's supposed to work for a long time. And then it's only in recent years that we're starting to get like proposals accounts Mm. of how this is going to work. Okay. Um, But still there are people who are like, well, you know, blameworthiness comes in degrees, but responsibility doesn't. So in fact, on every paper that I send him, my advisor, John Fisher, <laughs> tells me that's his view and that I should have that view. But I, I just don't see the the daylight between responsibility and then blameworthiness and praiseworthiness on the other hand. So I want to say that all comes in degrees. Yeah. But yeah, you, I mean, that's where I see there, there, there's the most resistance is degrees of responsibility. Okay. Yeah, so you're kind of like, this is the Wild West and you're kind of staking a claim here. <laughs> and it could be awesome and it could be like dude taylor sears said this way back in 2022 man he was like a pioneer or it could be like do you can you believe they they thought it came in degrees look at this guy taylor sears man. Like, <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> it's risky man risk it risking it for the biscuit though <laughs> high risk high reward here i love it yeah i've never thought of my philosophy favors like that but i guess yeah sure <laughs> well now yeah now it's now it's out there we just had a whole episode on it um yo oh dude okay this last question again i don't know if it's any good but um when it comes to re- reflecting, okay, the, the the historicist condition that you do have, the little bit mm-hmm. that that influences the structuralism, like you're you're more responsible. The more history that you have backing the action, does that does that sound yeah, right? That's roughly right. I mean, yeah, it depends on the details, but like 
yeah, if you've had uh, the chance to reflect on your character and to yeah. endorse it or to shape it, then that kind of history can make you more praiseworthy and blameworthy down the line. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, shoot. I, I got to derail real quick. So, so someone gets manipulated mm-hmm. um, on a Tuesday, whatever. And then um, part of the manipulation was that they would reflect on the, the murder they're manipulated to commit a murder. And part of it was that they would just ruminate on it and plan it meticulously and enjoy it. Three years down the line, they're going to kill somebody. Does, does, um, on your view, are they more responsible than, uh, the person who was manipulated that night and then went and acted on it without the rest? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Okay. Even if they were manipulated into thinking and ruminating on it. Yeah. I mean, the case where it wouldn't make a difference that there was that time that passed is if, like, they're not really deliberating about it. Like, you can imagine the neuroscientists, like, pushing buttons that are, like, making various mental states occur to the agent, but it's not really them reflecting. Sure. But I think the neuroscientists can, like, set up a process of deliberation and then let it run. Oh, okay. And if they do that and there's opportunities to reflect on it, I mean, this is where maybe it does make a difference that I'm a compatibilist, but like, even if they do this with a deterministic process that they know is going to result in the agents coming to some conclusion in three years, um, yeah, I don't think that that undermines their responsibility. And provided that they have a chance to reflect on it more and endorse it, they can actually become more responsible. And, and but 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 they still just for everyone, like they're still not as responsible as someone who just straight up kills someone without being manipulated. Like they're still less responsible than that person. Yeah. But they're more responsible than the the middle case is another case that gets talked about in the manipulation literature. It's sometimes called the Zygo argument case. Yeah. That's what I I, popped up in my head too. That one, that one's so tricky. So in that case, it's like you build in all the manipulation at the start of the agent's life where like Diana has this whole plan for Ernie. And so she creates a zygote that she knows is going to develop into this agent Ernie, who's going to do all this stuff. So she's got in mind, he's going to deliberate in this way and that way. And then he's going to perform this action when he's 30. And there, I want to say there's no relevant difference between Ernie and Bernie, basically his duplicate in a universe that, you know, without Diana, as long, you know, I think they're exactly the same when it comes to responsibility. That that's like the based answer. That's just like I'm just gonna bite the bullet. Biting the bullet is based. I, I'm I'm realizing that more and more. We're just like, yeah, I'm just gonna do it. That's what based means, and that's pretty epic. It still seems like there's something weird, but I love that you do that and just like, yeah, they're they're both equal. Um, yeah. But but you have a nice account of why there's a difference between the Diana case and then like um, the Ann Beth case. Like that's a midlife, like, yeah, radical reversal that you don't get in the ernie case yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the so, the zygo I case i don't know is, what based means but that that does that seems less than based it's yeah, <laughs> the zygo just freaks me out because i'm a christian and so it's like yeah. well can we just put this against and it's like well you know i don't think like, we got moral perfection and necessary beings over here and so like i just i i don't know i need to think of through that one more but i set all this up because um, with the rumination, with the thinking more, um, and, and degrees of responsibility, like if you're teaching your students the trolley problem, then you might be making them more responsible f- for their behaviors. Mm. 
What, what do you think about that? If yeah. you're teaching them ethics, right? If you're teaching them, yeah. like the more philosophy you teach these folks, the more we can hold them responsible for stuff. Yeah. Well, is that true? Is that right? This is why few of us should become teachers. Like we're going to be held to a higher standard or something. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, or it might be a case against taking your philosophy classes, man. <laughs> yeah, that would be bad. Uh, yeah. No, well, so it depends on a lot of things, but like, is it the case that like taking an ethics class and especially like thinking through the trolley problem that you're now like, um, that you've somehow, your character has been changed in ways that, you know, go through your capacities for rational deliberation, um, such that you now would do some action that you wouldn't have done beforehand. When I talk to my students mm -hmm. about it, they seem pretty firm in their convictions about variations on the trolley case. And I don't know that I'm actually doing much changing. Mm, okay. And yeah, the, maybe this is, maybe this is more controversial. I, I'm not sure how much an ethics class uh is going to shape a person's character i do think there can be ways of studying ethics and for that to be more formative and maybe that's a goal but at least i mean when, that's not what i'm thinking when i teach the trolley problem I'll just okay say that. okay um but if 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 responsibility comes in degrees and someone has thought about well, yeah, someone's thought about moral dilemmas more, uh, John and Steve, and like they both do this 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 action. They both perform an action. Both of them knew it was wrong, but like Steve took philosophy, and, and now he's a professor in philosophy, uh, professor of philosophy. Like it seems like he would have more responsibility to not do that thing, because he he knows more. Or yeah, right. If if that's how if that's yeah by accepting all those features of the case, I think that's the right result. That like yeah, if you knew better than someone else, even though you both knew to some extent that something was wrong, yeah, like the one who knows better ought you know. Get, yeah, I guess get that's true. Blind. I guess I walked myself right into like something that's really not not controversial. With with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> Dang it! I should have paid attention to Spider Man more. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay, all right, I like that. Well, dude, this has been fantastic, man. It's, it's it's helped me a lot. It's I don't like it a ton because I don't I want to be a historicist, <laughs> but I, I actually do like your position because you have a a really serious role for um, uh, historicism. Mm -hmm. It's it's yeah, just I guess, just got to read. Right. Yeah, I just got to rethink like <clears throat> degrees of responsibility. I guess like mm -hmm. yeah, this is wild. Um, yeah, man. So. My my brain is fried on this. It's really, really, really fascinating. And I'm I'm so glad to get back into like free will stuff after being out of it for a little while, just reading right. your stuff. Yeah, so well, seriously appreciate it. it. Yeah. Um man, so where where can people find like more of your work? We didn't even mention the free will show. Yeah, so um yeah, people that are listening to this podcast might be interested in a podcast about free will. So you could check out The Free Will Show, which I host with my historicist friend, uh, Matt Flummer. Mm -hmm. And we're in our fourth season here at the beginning of 2022. And this season, we're um, 
we're interviewing mostly earlier career scholars and we're doing it on like whatever they're working on. So it's, it's not as organized as a season uh, around a single topic as our earlier seasons were. The earlier seasons are more introductory. And, yeah. um, the third one's about free will and science, but this one's kind of on all sorts of stuff. We'll have some on moral luck and manipulation. So if people liked this, you can hear some other kind of cutting edge work by checking that out. But yeah, for my stuff, uh, my, my papers and other you know, podcasts and YouTube interviews, um, my website is the place to go, which is uh, Taylor W. Sear, C-Y-R. Um, dot com. And I think if you just Google Taylor Sear philosophy, it'll come right up. Yeah. And I'll, I'll drop a link in the description as well. Um, and to the, to the free will show as well. Sweet. Thanks. Dude, thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for having me again. I, I love your podcast and it's just fun to come back, uh, to be part of the five timer club. That's right, man. Hopefully make you uh, a 10 timer, 20 timer. We'll see what the future <laughs> has in store. Um, folks, if you guys like this, this episode, please like it, uh, leave us a comment. You can uh, talk to people like Taylor um, who've been on the show. If you join our Facebook group, Parker's Pensies Ponceurs. And again, if you want to support the podcast, check the link in the description for the Patreon. Um, please consider becoming a patron. And then uh, also don't forget to check out Biblios Clothing Company uh, and use the link in the description for 10% off your whole order. That would be sick. All right, guys, that's going to have to do it. And as always, all glory to God. 